Our first scripture passage is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, read from the English Standard Version. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Our second reading of Ephesians 2 is from the Kingdom New Testament, a translation by N.T. Wright, reading from verses 12 to 22. Well, once upon a time, you were separated from the king. You were detached from the community of Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants which contained the promise. There you were, in the world with no hope and no God. But now, in King Jesus, you've been brought near in the king's blood. Yes, you who used to be a long way away. He is our peace, you see. He has made the two to be one. He has pulled down the barrier the dividing wall that turns us into enemies of each other. He has done this in his flesh by abolishing the law with its commands and instructions. The point of doing all this was to create in him one new human being out of the two, so making peace. God was reconciling both of us to himself in a single body through the cross by killing the enmity in him. So the Messiah came and gave the good news. Peace had come. Peace, that is, for those of you who were a long way away, and peace, too, for those who were close at hand. Through him, you see, we both have access to the Father in the one spirit. This is the result. You are no longer foreigners or strangers. No, you are fellow citizens with God's holy people. You are members of God's household. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the King Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is fitted together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You too are being built up together. In him, 
into a place where God will live by the Spirit. The word of the Lord. When did you first realize you were white? I never had to think about it. I was always in the majority. There was some diversity growing up in Northern Virginia, but I never had to think about it. It was never a question posed to me. It was never one that crossed my mind. But of course, that's not the case with many people, especially in America. A year ago, in uh, the blog, Thin Places, hosted by Amy Julia Becker through Christianity Today, she had a series of guest posts on race in America. Helen Lee, an editor for InterVarsity Press, is a multi-generational Korean-American, and she talks about the time about a year ago when her son, who's 10, 11, 12, she doesn't say the exact age, came home from baseball practice said, Mom, the kids were making racist jokes about me. Sometimes I wish I weren't Asian. I wish I were more American. Helen Lee's son couldn't be more American. Ramesh Wijasuraya is from Sri Lanka, but spent age 10 on in the United States. And he said this, as most children learn quite early, our peers grade us primarily on superficial evaluations of our physical appearance, height, weight, color, beauty, clothes, hair, style, lack of acne, too much acne. However, my skin color trumped all of my other superficial qualities in the land of first impressions. Melody Hobson speaking at a TED Talk. Melody Hobson is the uh, president of Aerial Investments in Chicago and is currently the chairman of the board for DreamWorks Movies. Melody Hobson talked about being age seven in 1976 and the only black girl in a white school. She got invited to a birthday party. She's age seven, remember? She comes home from the birthday party and her mom's only question was not, how was the cake? What games did you play? Her mom's question was, how did they treat you? Because her mom's own experiences assumed the worst. The hope is that things change. Melody Hobson was seven in 1976, but she then retells tells a story of 2006. 2006, she gets a phone call from Harold Ford, who wanted to run for Senate. And he talked to Melody Hobson saying, hey, can you help me? I'm trying to think about putting together um, a team. I need to know how this is going to play out, whether I should run for Senate or not. And Melody said, let me call my friend in marketing in New York City. The friend said, hey, I know what we do. We get an editorial board together for a lunch in New York, introduce Harold Ford to them. Harold Ford is also black. So Harold and Melody show up, full suits, ready dressed. They enter into this New York City uh, office building. The receptionist welcomes them in. They say, hey, we're here for the editorial board lunch. She then takes them to a back room where there is a stark room and says, well, where are your uniforms? The expectation that this 30-something black man and black woman must be there to serve, not to run for Senate. 
Are we post-racial? Have we fixed the systematic problems in the United States? Have we even confessed sin? Have we healed any wounds? And have we dealt with superiority and disdain beyond black and white? Undocumented immigrants, people who look Middle Eastern, tea partiers, liberals, superiority and disdain and division come up all over the place. Does the gospel have anything to say about any of this? I don't want to talk about any of this. Not because I don't think it shouldn't be talked about, because I don't think I'm the right person to talk about it. As I said, I've never wondered about my whiteness. I've never had to. I've never dealt with the kind of receiving end of being minority that others have. I've not entered into people's pain or their histories. I've not even had the hard conversations with more than one or two friends through the years. So all I can do this morning is point to the gospel. We should have other people up here speaking whose experiences could tell a little more truth, but I came to this direction later in the week, couldn't get there. So we're just gonna look at the gospel, open this up a little bit, but realistically we're opening a wound, we're not trying to, trying to sew it back up by the end. So let's do that. What does the gospel say in this area? Superiority, division. How does the gospel call us to something more or challenge us? And how does the gospel provide hope for all of us? In Ephesians 2, 11 and 12, Paul kicks this whole thing off talking about Jews and Gentiles. I'm not going to read the verses there, but they can be up on the screen. But basically, here's the story. Jews hated Gentiles in the first century. They were outside of God's covenant, and they disliked them to the point of a form of racism, equivalent to anything we've ever had in America or any country has ever had. And it really is 2,000 years of history that bore into that. You see, 2,000 years before Jesus, Abraham is called, and God says, you will be my chosen, and your people will be my chosen people. To be chosen by God is to be separated from others. And Israel saw themselves as the holy set-apart people. God gave them promises, covenant, a land. God gave them a temple where he would dwell with them as his people. And he gave them his law, his covenant treaty, saying there is a relationship between you and me. Now Israel was supposed to Supposed to use all of that to reveal God to the world. God is holy. God promises. God chooses the unworthy. They were supposed to reveal God and draw the nations in. But they didn't. Instead, over years, Israel became more and more superior. Gentiles don't have the law, the covenants. And they became more protective. Gentiles will contaminate us. They'll cause us to go after their gods, keep them away. 
by the first century, it was a form of hatred, division, and racism equivalent to anything we've seen ever. The first century view was Gentiles are pagan, unclean, they were hated. There's even an archaeological finding from a wall that used to surround the temple in Jerusalem in the first century. The archaeological inscription says this in the Greek, let no foreigner, Gentile, enter within the partition and enclosure surrounding the temple. Whoever is arrested will himself be responsible for his death, which will follow. The wall to keep them out at penalty of death. Now, most commentators suggest that that's not exactly what Paul was looking at when he talks about a wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, but it typifies in archaeological finding what was the status of Jew and Gentile in first century Palestine. Keep them out. But Paul talks about in verse 14 the wall of hostility. That between Jew and Gentile there was enemy, wallness, division. The reality is the Bible tells us that hostility relationally is inherent to all humanity. And it goes back to Genesis. Stories that we've told and retold here. It goes like this. In Genesis 2, Adam created in God's image, is in relationship with God. God walks with Adam and talks with Adam, and he is in the presence of God in what we would call peace or harmony or shalom, wholeness and relationship with God. As a result, he was able to be in relationship with Eve. He was naked and unashamed, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually, nothing to hide from Eve. And the two became one. Because he was in peace with God, he could be in peace with Eve. But sin enters. Adam and Eve disobey God. And in turning from God, they create hostility. What happens when, at, when God comes again? Adam hides from God. He's against God now. And he's also against Eve. Genesis 3 says Adam covers himself, hides himself. She can fend for herself. Adam, what did you do? It was the woman. Obviously. Psh. Oneness to blame. Nakedness and unashamed to hiding and covering. The Bible says sin, which we talk about here, is not immorality. It's not stealing, lying, cheating. Those things are sins. Sin primarily is living apart from God, being separated from God, and it translates into being separated from people, from one another. All relationships are broken because we are broken from the main relationship. But the gospel tells us that has been reconciled, and through Christ, we can have relationship with God again and therefore with one another. Paul lays it out very clearly although a little bit confusingly, in verses 13 to 16. Doing my best to unpack that, probably failing and will confuse you, but let's do it anyhow. Verses 13 to 16, Paul says to the, to the Gentiles, but now in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles who were once far off from God have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. 
for he, Christ himself, is our peace. He has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances in order that he might create in himself one new man and in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Try to summarize that. Christ is our peace, peace with God. He tears down the wall of hostility between us and God. How? His blood being shed, verse 13, and his death on the cross, verse 16. But how exactly does this play out? Well, I think this is an allusion to something that actually you can find in ancient documents outside of even the Bible. In the ancient world, the biblical world, the Old Testament world, thousands of years before Jesus, when two kings were making a treaty, a covenant of peace, like two nations might make a peace treaty with each other, when two nations made a peace treaty, they did it with a covenant ceremony. They didn't have lawyers. What they had instead was priests. So what they would do in order to ratify their oaths and covenants of peace is they would take animal carcasses, Sounds like a fun way to do law. Animal carcasses and split them in half lengthwise. So there was a bull split in half and maybe a sheep and maybe a goat. And what would happen is the king or his representative would walk through the aisle on either side of these split carcasses as the covenant promises were being read. Basically, he was making an oath. And the oath was this. If I do not uphold my end of the bargain, if I and my people, my nation, do not uphold our end of the peace treaty, may what happened to these animals happen to me, happen to us. May we be torn in two. It was the oath and curse for breaking peace treaties. How does, how does Jesus tear down the dividing wall? How does he make peace with God? Well, God gives the law and covenant to all of us, not just to Israel. You know the Ten Commandments, right? That's part of his covenant of peace with us. But has anyone ever obeyed that? Jesus made it clear nobody does. All of us sin. All of us break the covenants. All of us have broken God's peace treaty with humanity and deserve to be torn in two. <laughs> but Christ bears the curse. He allows himself to be torn in two for our disobedience. God makes a covenant with humanity and says, if you sin, you deserve death, but instead says, you sinned, I will take the death. The cross kills the hostility between man and God because Christ bears the hostility that we deserve. Now we have peace with God, verse 14. Now we can be reconciled to God, verse 16. All of us, all of us can be at peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And the good news of that is that it means that we can be reconciled to one another. Verses 17 and 18, Paul goes on to say, and he, Jesus Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father.
Who we are and what we do is how every religion ever has worked and it's how every culture has worked. If you're from a traditional culture or a traditional religion, then your birth, meaning who your relatives are, your bloodline, your ethnicity or nationality, like your caste in some systems, or your religiousness and rule following determine whether you're in or not. In a liberal system, more like America or the West in general, it may not be birth, but it's merit-based. It's performance-based. It's be good. Be good enough. Be nice. Be earnest. If you're going to be religious, at least be earnest about it. But who you are by birth, who your parents are, what nationality you are, what ethnicity, what language you speak, and how good you are is not the gospel. The gospel tells us in verse 18, we both, Jew who follows all the rules and has the right bloodline, and Gentile who breaks all the rules and has the wrong bloodlines, both have access to the Father only through Christ. But that also means that we can both have access to the Father through Christ. It's by grace. We talked about it last week. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. It's a gift from God. That means that your race or your nationality, your success in life, even being really good, does not get you any closer to God. But the good thing is it can't make you any further from God either. The Bible tells us all are sinful and apart from God, but any of us can have access to the Father through Christ. Tim Keller summarizes this in The Prodigal God when he writes, here's what we need to know. Everyone is wrong. Everyone is loved. Everyone is called to recognize this and change. See, what's radical about the gospel is the way that it includes everyone, everyone, everyone. Galatians 3.28, Paul puts down what's one of the most radical things ever stated, and you're not going to find this in your religious studies textbooks. They're going to focus on something else. Galatians 3.28, Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What Paul's saying here is not that there aren't differences of ethnicity or social caste or gender, it's that those differences are no longer determinative of your identity or your status or your future or your hope. They don't make you further from God. They can't get you any closer because it is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that we are saved. And what he offers is open to everyone, male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, black and white. Do you know how radical this was in the first century? Do you know that any sense in Western civilization of equality is actually born out of this? This was the first time this was ever stated and it was pushed forward in fits and spurts, no doubt. But actually what birthed Western liberal civilization that says all are equal is this. But when it's not founded on the gospel, 
the in-out superiority, inferiority will still take place. See, this is just as radical as it was back then, it is today as it was back then. We're not really ready to live this out. But Paul gives further hope and calling because he says, now in Christ, Jew and Gentile have been made one, one family. Do you know how radical that was? One household, verse 19. One household of God. To say Gentiles were part of the household of God without circumcision, following the law, simply because they believed in Jesus, that was outlandish. But he says, it's by grace even Gentiles are part of the family of God. And then he goes on to say in verses 20 to 22 is that we are one building. In verses 20 to 22, he writes, we have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. Jew and Gentile in one building, a dwelling place of God. Walk through this with me and see how God plays this out or Paul plays this out to help us to understand the gospel. The Bible tells us every human being is made in the image of God. Even those who don't believe in God are reflecting God in some way. And so when I see a human being, I can see a picture of God in a small way. The Bible says if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, indwells you, and you now become a walking temple, a representative of God to the world, because God is in you and displaying himself to the world around you in your actions and words and presence. But a step further is that when the church is gathered together, and when the church, not just this local iteration of the church, when the church is gathered together in all of its diversity, Jew and Gentile, it is the fullest reflection of God. Because what each culture and race and language presents as a little person with the Spirit of God coming together, it is the fullest picture of who God is. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, Sunday at 11 a.m. is the most segregated hour in America. In some ways, that's a challenge that we may not ever really be able to get over because what language am I speaking in? I've already isolated people who this is not their heart language. Anytime you play music, you're going to make choices that will work on some people and really annoy others. A friend of mine, Corey Whitmer, is part of a really racially integrated church in Richmond, and he said that basically their goal is that you would only be 75% happy with a worship service. Because if you're more than that, it means that your culture is having too much to say for that Sunday. So if you're really going to look at it, it would be being willing to sacrifice something in order to gain a bigger picture of God. Another way to do it is really to intentionally build relationships, to recognize there is a benefit to a Spanish language or an Arabic language or a Chinese language church because those things are good gifts from God, but we need to be the kind of people who connect with churches and people who worship in different forms, Baptist, Catholic, 
Pentecostal, Presbyterian, across languages, across nations. It's one of the reasons I love Anglicanism is because it is global. You can go to Africa, you can go to Asia, and you can see iterations of the church that are different than what this is gonna look like on a Sunday. Sorry, all that was an aside. We are called to be one body, one building and one body. And really that's where I wanna hit is in verse 14 and 15, Paul says, he has made us both one. The Jew and Gentile have have both become one. In verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. This is actually harking back to Genesis. Adam and Eve are brought together as one flesh. Here it's saying, in Christ, Jew and Gentile are one person, one flesh. And the implications, of course, as you play out that whole body thing, Paul talks about it again and again in other passages. If we really do think about black America as part of my body, Arabic Christian as part of my body, other language groups, other nations as part of my body, The sufferings of my arm are my sufferings. The sickness in my eye, it's my body. Any injury to any part of my body is an injury to me. But I have to say, that's not how I think about it. I think about it as a problem there because I'm not really experiencing it myself. If we are one body, it means we cannot ignore the crimes, hurts, needs of others in Christ just because they aren't here or aren't part of my racial or linguistic or cultural subgroup. I tend to think, well, that's their problem and I've got enough of my own. The gospel should reorient us and say, any problem in the body is mine. It doesn't mean I can take care of every problem but I should be broken by it, concerned by it. I should grieve for it. I should confess into it. There are implications of this gospel, that we are reconciled to God by grace and that we're reconciled to one another because we are reconciled to God. You see, because the gospel says that I'm sinful by nature, it calls me to humility, to admit my own biases, my own superiority and disdains, We all have them. They may not be race-based. We all have things that we feel superior about and people we disdain. Confessing those is a part of acknowledging that we are all sinners. But the gospel also assures me that I'm loved through faith in Christ, and so it moves me to love even those with whom I have nothing in common or even disagree. We cannot say, am I my brother's keeper? That's what Cain said who murdered his brother. And God said, where's your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? That's never the response in the gospel. The gospel calls us to identify with our brother, whoever he or she is, brother and sister, and to carry and confront their pain and their injustices. 
You know, it's two quick case studies. Paul does this two separate times. One time with Peter, who was a pillar of the church, who was more founded as a leader in the church than Paul was. In front of an entire group of people, Paul confronts Peter about his racism and his hypocrisy because he would eat food with Gentiles until some Jews showed up, and then he'd be like, I'm not going to eat with those people. I would be unclean. And Paul called him out because there's a time to call out hypocrisy. You know what else? Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians, many commentators believe, from prison. And if it fits with the book of Acts, the reason why Paul was imprisoned, get this. You can go read it in Acts 20 yourself. The reason why Paul was arrested and imprisoned was partly because he was preaching Jesus in Jerusalem. But you know what? You actually couldn't get arrested for preaching Jesus. So they had to have another reason. You know why he got arrested? For bringing a Gentile into the temple. He brought an Ephesian guy, an Ephesian Gentile, into the temple area, and so they arrested him. He took something that he knew was illegal, was against the law of his people, and said, this is a wrong thing, and I'm going to confront it directly, even if it means putting myself in the line. I'll just do a blog post or something like that. The arrest thing sounds a little dangerous. But the gospel calls us to get involved in some way, to love as Christ loved us, which means entering and even being willing to die. Because the gospel tells us we have peace with God through Christ's death, through Christ's death, right? That's how we have peace with God. It's not God said, hey, peace, shake. You have peace because somebody died, Christ died. The undeserving one, the one who deserved none of it, died for us, the undeserving. It calls me to sacrifice my rights for you. Philippians 2.6, we say this one occasionally as one of our confessions of faith. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. N.T. Wright, in one of his translations, takes that part that I underlined, and he phrases it this way. Jesus, though he is God and has everything God about him, does not exploit his godness, if you would, for his own good. His power and his status, he does not use for his own good, but but gives them up for God's glory and your good and mine. Jesus surrendered position and power to identify with us in the incarnation, and he gave up his rights as God, for our good. Am I willing to do the same? Are my politics, pocketbook, lifestyle, the sorts of things that benefit only me? Can I guard them because, well, it's my right? Or do I give them up to God for his glory and your good? The gospel calls me to sacrifice my freedoms and rights for you and for them, whoever them is. But the gospel also enables me to do that, potentially. <laughs> because let's face it, all I really need, all I really need is what I already have in Christ. And it's already mine by grace. Christ gave himself for me so maybe I can give myself for you. 
The mystery of the gospel is this. Ephesians 1, which we talked about two weeks ago, talked about how God has revealed his mystery. Ephesians 3, 6, which we'll get to next week, puts it this way. This is the mystery. What's the mystery of the gospel? It's that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel. When Paul realizes this, Paul, who had been a faithful and racist Jew, realizes that it's by grace and even the Gentiles are included, he's like, what? Gentiles too? Even them? Why do they get to be in? Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, even Gentiles are included. Which means there's hope for both blacks and whites. For immigrants and media elites, there's even hope, there's even hope, get this, for people who go to church. Even for you. Because our hope is in Jesus, who alone brings us near to God, who alone is our peace. Let's pray. God, there's no way to approach these sorts of subjects without hitting on nerves that all of us have dealt with, defensiveness and pain, blame and hurt. God, forgive us our sins. Heal our wounds. And let us understand the grace of the gospel, that it allows even, even, even us to have access to the Father through Jesus, your Son, in whose name we pray, amen. built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest fame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all the ground is sinking sand. 